This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Clarissa Hyman about her book, Tomato, A Global History, which was published in 2019 by Reaction Books. Uh, Clarissa is a food and travel writer based in Manchester and a two-time winner of the Glenn Fittish Food Writer of the Year Award. She's also the author of the Jewish Kitchen, Cucina Siciliana, and Oranges, A Global History. Clarissa, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and I also wrote a book called The Spanish Kitchen. Which Spanish was, uh, Kitchen. Okay, thank, yes. thank you for reminding so, so me of that. It's okay, <laughs> I've roamed the Mediterranean uh, particularly in search of interesting stories about food and travel and culture. Okay, I can. Uh, I hope you can tell us uh, a bit more about that. But to start off, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up as a food and uh, travel writer and researcher, and uh, if you could tell us about your other books as well? Okay. Um, I never woke up one morning and thought, I want to be a food and travel writer. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody ever does. You know, life is just a series of coincidences and happenings and you you don't always know where it's leading you but I actually grew up in a food world Um, my parents had a delicatessen shop so I kind of grew up surrounded by food and had an early interest in food although it was more it was more a question of of quantity I think how much I was eating rather than than um, just the quality of what I was eating which motivated me but at the same time, because I was in this sort of food environment, um, I did become conscious about, you know, what makes good food and what people want to eat and, and how people go about um, learning about food and exploring food. Um, anyhow, that, that was a very good groundwork for um, a later career. Um, in, in be- before I became a food and travel writer, I actually worked in television for quite a long time as a producer and researcher. And I did several food programs um, in the course of which I, I made a series of small films with somebody who was at the time the editor of the Good Food Guide. And um, We traveled around the UK um, eating at um, Granada TV's expense, which was rather wonderful. And that kind of set a pattern for me for the future because I learned as a result of that, I I was recruited as an inspector uh, for the Good Food Guide. And I kind of 
it, it was a big help in terms of learning how to assess food and think about food and the language in which you describe food and to sort of form comparative judgments about food. Anyhow, cut a long story short, um, I eventually left the world of television and I started to write, but I didn't know what to write about. And it's very hard when you can write about anything you want to, you know, what do you, what do you choose? And a friend gave me some excellent advice and said, write about something you really enjoy, you really like doing and become a specialist in that area because, you know, that, that's how you find your own niche. And, and you'll also, I, I do believe that you write your best work if it is something that really engages you. Um, I mean, I can be a hack. I can be a jobbing journalist. I, I, I think I could probably write about anything. Um, but I do think if it's, if it's a subject that you are passionate about or, or really, you know, interested in, um, you know, you're going to do your best work. And I've always loved food and I've always loved eating. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people say to me, well, what's my qualifications for being a food writer? And I say, oh, I'm a VGE, which is I'm a very good eater. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's true. I don't think you can you can be a food writer uh, w- without enjoying your food. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of travel, I've always had a, a curiosity about what's around the next corner um i'm not a person who when they go on holiday just sits on the beach and does nothing i'm always up and about and you know going here going there looking around you know buildings and streets and talking to people um i don't know whether it's because i'm from the north of england in the north of england we are sort of known for being very outgoing and friendly and chatting and um i'm very happy you know sitting on a bus or in a cafe and just chatting to the next person whereas you but I, I think it's a great way and, and I've come across so many stories and, and tales and I, I mean even when I was doing the Sicilian book particularly you know um, I, I, I would just ask my taxi driver for a recipe <laughs> and then mm. after a moment of surprise they would give me a wonderful family recipe because <laughs> Fundamentally, I think everybody likes talking about food. Exactly. And, and there is a, a, a very vast diversity in the books that you've write. Um, I mean, a Jewish kitchen, uh, you know, uh, one book on Italian cooking, one book on Spanish cooking. So what's the story behind that? Well, I have to confess, I was asked to do them. It wasn't just, you know, that's the truth. Um, But I don't think I'd have been asked to do them if the um, editors or the publishers, you know, were, you know, didn't didn't think that I could could do them. And the the editor I particularly worked with for my first two books um, knew that I was very familiar with Jewish food, knew that I'd been to Sicily quite a lot, knew that I'd been, and then later knew that I'd been to Spain quite a lot. So, and and I was also doing freelance food writing at the same time. So I was um, writing articles on a very wide range of food subjects for a lot of newspapers and magazines. Um, So I think it wasn't um, totally random that I was asked to write these books. Um, you know, it was on the basis that it's 
was a sort of area, subject areas I was reasonably familiar with. Um, but also, I think when I did the first book, there was a bit of a change going on in the food world in, to, in, in publishing. And I think up till then, apart from a few exceptions, on the whole, you know, a cookery book was a cookery book, was a cookery book and just had recipes. Whereas I was actually, because I'm not a, a cookery writer and I, I wasn't trained as a chef or a cook or a caterer, and, and I like cooking and I do recipes, but I don't, you know, I, I like collecting them. I'm a sort of anthropologist when it comes to recipes rather than being a total originator. And I was more interested always have been in the story in the culture in the experience the lived experience behind those recipes and I liked learning about the memories attached to the recipes or the cultural traditions that surrounded those recipes or the connection that the recipe had with the farmer or the fisherman or whatever and um, I can't see recipes just as a collection of ingredients on a plate I think that there is a context and a much more complicated story behind that that you know finished dish on a plate and that's what I've always wanted to explore in in my books uh, that is indeed an anthropological approach. Uh, but uh, coming to Tomato, uh, I mean, Tomato is published as part of uh, Reaction Books' Edible series. And for those listeners who don't know about um, Edible series, it's a series that focuses on the global history and culture of one type of food or beverage in each of its books. And your book, uh, Clarissa, is on Tomato. Or uh, should I say your second book is on tomato because your first book is actually on oranges. But why tomato? I think the... Sorry. I think, well, firstly, we have to agree whether we say tomato or tomato. <laughs> yes, <laughs> please set up, settle that debate now. for us. <laughs> we call the whole thing off. Um, no, no, I'm joking. Um, I, I think the fact that tomatoes are probably the largest horticultural crop in the world today. Now, it gives them a status you just can't ignore if you're doing a series on single ingredients. Um, I came across an interesting statistic the other day that said we, we now produce 182 million tonnes of tomatoes globally every year. And that's the equivalent of the weight of 32 great pyramids of Giza. So just imagine those tomatoes, you know, are laid end to end that they didn't circle the globe, probably. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary number of tomatoes. And given they have a relatively, you know, new history in global terms, I mean, that's an astonishing success story for this little little red fruit or vegetable, whichever, again, whichever side you come down on. Mm. Um, and certainly over the last 15 years or so, global production has just risen year on year. And I mean, it's, uh, it's an incredible variety of, of tomatoes on the market now. I mean, you know, the, the early 
producers would would not recognize the tomato world today and certainly the old aztecs you know where the tomato originated mm. you know would would you know would not believe it you know mm. they'd be asking the gods what's happened yeah. could you give us a very light version of this history that you're talking about i mean where is tomatoes origin you, you just mentioned but uh, when did it become a thing and well it's been a thing i think probably ever since the Aztecs started um, growing them, but although before then they, they, you know, came originally from South America, the sort of Andean hills and the, what is Peru now today and Ecuador. Um, and they started to become a thing with the Aztecs as, as you know, the seeds various through various routes went northwards um the aztecs were more keen on tomatillos which are a similar sort of uh fruit slash vegetable um but they then i mean, i just have to condense the the, the history which is ex, it's an extraordinary tale of of a romantic tale certainly tale of greed and and invention and rivalry and wars and exploration and and you name it um the tomato story's got it um but they became a thing really um i i think around about the 17th 18th centuries when having having traveled from the new world the new americas to the old world um and to Spain originally, uh, where they were a bit slow in, in, in taking off. It took a while for the tomato to be established as a sort of regular foodstuff. But from Spain, they went, um, or the seeds at least, uh, were taken to Italy. Again, I'm cutting a long, long tale of brigandry and smuggling and, um, you know, excitement and romance and poetry and cutting it very short. Um, and I think, again, in, in Italy, they struggled to be accepted initially. But once they were, once they sort of were really domesticated and, and you know, started, uh, I mean, the tomato loved the climate, the Mediterranean climate, as it turned out, and you know, could flourish. And once gardeners, particularly the Italian gardeners, um, became skilled enough to know how to cultivate them properly, and once people understood that they weren't going to die if they ate tomato, they weren't going to be poisoned, you know, they weren't going to suffer all sorts of consequences if they ate a tomato and, and they learned how to use them. Um, and, and because people naturally are suspicious about new things, yes. um, or certainly they have been in, in the past, you know, what, what's this? And it's, it's red and it's round and um, it's related to, you know, um, uh, all, all sorts of the mandrake or, you know, poison ivy or whatever. There was all sorts of superstitions and, you know, sort of, eerie ghostly stories about about the tomato it's also felt to be a um, an aphrodisiac um it's not 
know, did get get a name, Love Apple. I mean, this is this is quite you know erroneous. Um, but it was surrounded with myth and magic and mystery, and people were suspicious. And there's no no doubt that you know perhaps it did have ill effects on some people because it wasn't being grown correctly, and people didn't know how to cultivate it um, properly. They didn't know how to use it. Um, there was a period, particularly in, uh, at a time in Europe, when uh, food was classified into humours, um, you know, cold and, and hot aspects of food. And the tomato was felt to be a cold humour and, you know, not very good for you. Um, I mean, people both in Spain, Italy and, and um, Northern Europe thought of the um, tomato more in terms of its potential medicinal qualities mm. or its ornamental qualities in a garden. It took quite a long time for it to be incorporated into foodstuffs and into cooking. I mean, I mean, there always were people who would, who would, you know, bit, who perhaps were show-offs or sensationalists or, you know, social climbers and say, oh, I've got a tomato plant in my garden and uh, you haven't. And, and Cosimo de' Medici, you know, the famous um, re re Renaissance, um, you know, prince um, or the, the Medici family as a whole, they, they were very, um, very much engaged in pushing the boundaries of horticulture and gardening at the time. And they were known to have had tomatoes growing on one of their estates. And there, there is some documentation that um, they received a great big basket of tomatoes um, at one of the, I, I'm not sure which, which palace um, it arrived at in Florence. Um, but there's no record of how it, they were actually used, whether they ate them. Uh, my suspicion is that they regarded this this um, basket of straw uh, of strawberries. This they regarded this basket of tomatoes that arrived, you know, as you would, um, you know, a, a piece of modern art, and they would just place it, you know, on a table yes. and all walk round and admire it. You know, it was, it was sort of living sculpture, but 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 we don't we don't know. But it it did take a while for it to become incorporated into everyday eating. I mean, in, in, in Spain, um, it was really the, the uh, monasteries and the um, rather greedy monks of the time who explored its potential use in, you know, in, in the kitchen. Um, but it wasn't widespread. I mean, the other people, particularly in Spain, who would eat the tomato when it first in the 17th, 18th centuries were, were just very poor people who didn't have any much else to eat. And as I said, you know, um, as long as it didn't kill you, you, know, you could eat it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the, the sort of key thing. Although I don't think they realised it had you know a lot of new you know it was very it was not very high in terms of its nutritive um qualities um but and 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 when it went to italy it gained it took a while for it to you know catch on as a as a food stuff i mean again it was either um some aristocratic homes who were very keen on you know showing off or you know 
you know, saying, um, you know, that we're at the forefront of fashion and uh, we're, we're adventurous and we can eat these things. Or it was very poor peasants who would perhaps um, just for have a simple, have a tomato with some oil and salt and pepper and that was it um but as time went on particularly in italy it really um became very very significant in not just um gastronomic terms but in cultural and political terms as well mm. and it did particularly when it, it met pasta you know this was like a marriage made in heaven it was um and, and it was a very, very significant moment. I mean, tomato sauce had been developed for a while and people had known about tomato sauce. But uh, again, you know, the, the whole story of when tomato, tomato sauce met pasta in southern Italy um, is, again, I think it's incredibly romantic and, and very exciting. And eventually it became a symbol of national unity after the reunification of Italy, you know, tomato sauce and pasta became, you know, the symbol of national identity. And that's really when it became a thing, mm. as, as you asked. It is, and, yeah. As they say, and it eventually that spread to the, spread back to the new world when so many Italian people, uh, impoverished Italian people uh, returned not returned, say that again, when so many impoverished Italian peasants had to emigrate to America mm -hmm. because, you know, of both political, climate, agricultural, you know, collapse in Italy. I mean, there was a lot of famine, a lot of distress, you know, um, a lot of climate change. And... Um, for all sorts of reasons, a lot of American, a lot of Italians went to America and took their sauce with them. Mm -hmm. it, although it, it was known, it, the tomatoes were known in America, had been for several centuries, but um, the tomato sauce really, again, acquired a kind of huge symbolic presence in the, um, in the diet of North Americans, you know, and, and the red sauce, uh, you know, has become such a, uh, a fixture that we take for granted, whether it's on spaghetti with meatballs or in the form of tomato, tomato ketchup or, you know, tomato soup. Uh, again, the whole story of preserving tomatoes, you know, it, it needs a book on its own uh, because that's... Um, Again, I think it's a remarkable testament to human ingenuity. Um, you know, what can you do with a tomato? Well, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Exactly. And there, there was a couple of things that you mentioned, uh, huh? Clarissa, that I want to follow up on. Uh, the first one you mentioned, uh, uh, I mean, you keep mentioning to... Uh, you keep mentioning tomato sauce. So could you set another debate for us? Is it tomato sauce? Is it ketchup? And uh, because uh, I guess the most common tomato product that almost every one of us have at our homes, regardless of where in the world we are, is ketchup. So how did ketchup come about? What's the difference with tomato sauce? Or, or are they the same? There's an overlap. 
um, they're both ways of preserving uh, the tomato. Um, but tomato sauce generally is for short-term use. It's usually made uh, with a view to consuming it, you know, fairly quickly. Um, tomato ketchup is a, it's about long-term preservation. And tomato sauce or tomato puree, you know, has quite a, a historic pedigree. Um, because, and you know, some of the first recipes about tomato sauce go back to the, you know, 16th, 17th centuries. And there are various, you know, there's so many different recipes. But it's not something for, particularly for long-term use, until we get to the invention of canning um, techniques when you could, you know, preserve in a tin, you know, some tomato puree, for example. Um, but ketchup, the story of ketchup comes from a different direction altogether. I mean, ketchup was something that came out of the, the Far East, particularly under the British um, colonial rule, when a lot of um, people who went to work and serve and fight in, in the East, in India and, and China and so on, got used to a form of um, vegetable preservation, which was like a pickle or, um, you know, a, a marinated uh, vegetable of some sort, vinegary and, and spicy. And when they came back to, um, to, to Britain, um, they couldn't always find the right ingredients um, that they'd experienced and would use instead something like mushrooms um, or anchovies in their pickle um, or their relish or their ke ketchup, which is spelled rather differently. And so you, even now you can, you, you can find mushroom ketchup here and, and so on. Um, but it was when this, this way of preserving food, this relish, this condiment, went to the United States, or was taken there in you know, people's mental recipe books, um, that they started to use tomatoes as a part of this, this making this condiment. And that became the basis for tomato ketchup. And at one time, there were there were many, many varieties of tomato ketchup in the States at the 20th century. And mostly, um, I mean, you could make it at home, but it was a long, laborious process, um, you know, hours in a steamy kitchen. And, um, you know, as soon as it became commercially available, why, why wouldn't you, you know, buy a ready-made bottle of ketchup? Yes. Um, and, um, you know, as, as these things go, you know, in terms of capitalism, I mean, invariably, there was only going to be <laughs> one winner, you yes. know. And we all know who that was. <laughs> um, and, and tomato ketchup, you know, again, it was, you know, in the same way that, you know, tomato sauce needed pasta to fulfill its destiny. Um, <laughs> to, to, tomato, tomato, I'm, I'm talking American now. Uh, <laughs> tomato ketchup, you know, needed the hamburger, you know, or the, mm. or the hot dog. Yes. Well, more the hamburger, you know, to really come into its own 
and you can't separate the two now. How you know where where would the hamburger be without tomato ketchup? Exactly. Um, nowhere, <laughs> or very boring, you know. And, and um, so, so the, the ketchup, you know, most ketchup bottles last for quite a long time, and are spicy and vinegary, um, mm. often a bit sugary. Um, so. In, in that sense, it varies from tomato sauce, which um, is not usually quite so vinegary, certainly, and perhaps will only have a little bit of sugar in. I mean, the spicing, and generally doesn't have that much spicing any, anymore. Although now in the States, I'm, I was amazed to find that the old um, Aztec way of making, of using tomatoes in a kind of pounded sauce kind of pesto in which they also use chilies this sort of salsa is now outsells tomato ketchup you know mexican style salsa um is now bigger than than, than ketchup so which is a very strange you know um circle you know for for the tomato to be part of yes and um and another thing that that you uh, mentioned earlier that I want to follow up on is uh, that you mentioned uh, tomato has become kind of attached to an Italian image and it has become a national symbol of Italy. And and to this day, I, I meet you know people who think that a tomato is actually originated in Italy, and that is one of the things that you um, kind of. Um, you know, talk about in the book, which is one of my favorite parts of the book, uh, that you uh, argue that the history of tomato has a direct impact on, uh, you know, social, economic, and political forces, and vice versa. So could you elaborate a bit on that? Because it became the tomato, once it got established, you know, literally put down roots, particularly in southern Italy, where you know, uh, the, the, the reunification drive began and you had the um, Risorgimento and the um, Garibaldi's march and so on. And the tomato was easily available. It wasn't, you know, people knew how to use it. They knew how to cook with it. And it took it adapted very well to the climate and soil of the you know, regions of southern Italy. Um, we're not talking about the north of Italy, we're talking you know, more about, about sort of Rome and um, Campania and, and Sicily and so on. And so because it grew prolifically, it was used very widely. And therefore, it was a, it was something that adapted, and because it was very colourful as well, you know, it was a, very much could be adopted as a, as a national symbol. And it became something that, you know, Southern Italians were known for. Um, I mean, they didn't know, didn't know anything about tomatoes, really, in the north of Italy, apart from a few pockets, um, but this was became like a sort of a, a, a you know something people could rally around. People could eat easily, and um, you know it grew everywhere. It was cheap, uh, accessible. Um, there, there were 
and and then once you know people started eating the tomato they couldn't get enough of it so it, it was just naturally grew into this sort of iconic food stuff that you know um really distinguished italian culture and politics and i mean as time went on um you know even mussolini you know got very um excited about the use of the tomato in Italian cooking um, and saw it as something that, um, you know, Italy could lead the world in. So it certainly has um, impinged on many um, social and political movements, um, um, even in the, the futurist movement later on, um, when, you know, that they, they had very sort of ambivalent um, a very ambivalent sort of view about the, the use of tomatoes and tomato sauce in Italian cooking, and they, they wanted to ban pasta altogether. Um, so it's played a role at various times in the um, political and cultural history of Definitely. Italy. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about tomato growing? I mean, there are now outdoor grown tomatoes, there are indoor, ground toma uh, indoor grown tomatoes, there are rooftop grown tomatoes, there are tomatoes that are grown without soil, tomatoes that are ground, ground uh, without sun, and, and, and the list goes on. Uh, why is there so many variation? And is there like a best way of doing it? Or would any of these methods produce a better tasting tomato? Well, that's been the holy grail for quite a long time, mm. you know, to, to grow the best tomato. But you know, what is the best tomato? It's what you want it for, is what you want, what, you're, what are you going to use this tomato for? And so defining a good tomato or the best tomato is really intricately linked with the use it's going to have. And I mean, I think that's one of one of the fascinating things about tomatoes now, tomato growing now, is the range of techniques and methods you know you can use. Like you say, you know, I don't think there's a. I mean, they're growing tomatoes in space now. You know, wow. <laughs> unbelievable. You know, there are seeds you know circling us as we speak. Um, but you're you're finding tomatoes growing in Iceland, for example. There's a there's geo the restaurant in in Iceland, uh, which grows its own tomatoes year round using um, this sort of heat. You know, there's tomatoes, as you say, being grown on the tops of buildings and um, vertical farms. And there's tomatoes being being grown um, in very arid conditions or very salty conditions or very wet conditions. Um, there, there is a limit though to what, what you're going to be able to do with it where you're going to grow a tomato and how you're going to produce it. But I mean, the, the advances that have been made scientifically are absolutely mind boggling. And, and now it's very much, um, but, but as I say, it's a question of what you get, what are you going to use this tomato for? I mean, do you need a tomato which basically is going to last a long time on the shelf? you need a tomato that is going to withstand a lot of um, rough handling and transporting over a, a long distance. Um, you know, they grow tomatoes in Florida, um, beefsteak tomatoes, um, 
specifically for use in fast food joints on on hamburgers um, which they know they can be cut to within the millimeter of width um, and size to fit on top of a you know a quarter pound burger um, do you do you want a, a tomato which is juicy or do you want a tomato without many seeds uh how thick do you want the skin to be how fleshy how side do you want a tomato that crops all year round or um there are so many variables um it's 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 quite dazzling and and you know now you've got this whole thing about um the size of the tomato as well. I mean, the uh, I was astonished to find that the cherry tomato, again, is a relatively new marketing thing, um, but the cherry tomato has kind of taken over the world. It's, um, it's, it's snacks. The tomato as a snack has been a marketing triumph. It's not something that, you know, 20 years ago, people, 30 years ago, people... Um, would have thought you, you might have had a tomato at a, a picnic, you know, raw tomato, but you, 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 nobody would have predicted, you know, the tomato, the cherry tomato, you know, as a lunchbox snack uh, in the way that it is now, um, you know, would, would ever happen. Um, it's, it, it's an extraordinary, um, you know, there's an extraordinary range of uses at growing the tomatoes, um, again, it's been a fascinating story, very much linked to technology. Um, I mean, in the first place, the, the tomato development really could uh, take off in Europe, particularly Northern Europe, um, as a result of, you know, the, the introduction of glass houses and greenhouses and sheet glass so that you could grow tomatoes, you know, um, sheltered from the elements but because you know tomatoes aren't happy if it's very very cold or very very wet you know you could so that as i said before also um you know tomato preservation tomato canning um again that technology really propelled the, the use of the tomato um enormously um Technology, you know, really has helped the introduction of um, you know, hydroponics, aquaponics, aeroponics, um, all the other ponics, um, you know, have only come about in the last couple of decades. But it's a scientific um, relation to food production. Um, you know, it has been an enormous force for good, I think. It, ha it has its downside. We've had terrible, you know, um, scandals, uh, like the, the great German water scandal, when, you know, the, the push for a massive amount of tomatoes at the lowest possible price produced a tomato that actually nobody wanted to eat and nearly destroyed the Dutch tomato industry. Um We've had the great scandal of um, GMO tomatoes, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, this isn't the place to go into that. But what has come out of that um, is that we don't now have, I think, I think GMO is probably, you know, a dead duck as far as, you know, uh, horticulture is concerned. But what we do have now is gene editing and DNA sequencing 
which can really improve the quality of a tomato's appearance, its taste, um, its disease resistance, its cropping, its its um, growth cycles, and so on. So, uh, you know, how do you have? There isn't one answer to how do you grow the best tomato. There are many answers because there are many purposes for the tomato. And um, at the end of the book, uh, Clarissa, you include some recipes with tomatoes. Uh, mm -hmm. Where do these recipes come from? I mean, why did you choose those <laughs> recipes in particular? Is there a story behind them? or? Well, it's a bit random, to be honest. Um, I've, there was no great, no great scheme. It was just as I went along. I did come across, you know, things which didn't fit in really anywhere else in the book or which intrigued me to some extent or mm. just sort of captivated me and just caught my imagination. I mean, I, mean, I thought, well, I've you know, I just love the idea of, um, you know, a, a um, well, the tomato soup um, cake. You know, I thought, well, we've got to try that. You know, it just sounded so absurd and, and unpalatable. I thought, oh, but in fact, it's it turned out to be rather good. And the fact that it, that it had become such a huge fashionable fad, you know, in, in America at one period, um, you know, 50s and 60s, like everybody was making tomato soup cake. I thought, well, we've got to have that. And, you know, I in a way, you know, we, ha we have carrot cake, so maybe it's not that stupid, but it just sounded, you know, like, oh, I've got to try that, got to include that. And and I love the sound of the, the man winning tomato salad. I mean, you know, what girl could resist that, <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, um, you know, that had to go in. And um, what else? Oh, there was this is a beautiful recipe called tomato, tomate a la Lucie, um, which is, which I, I think is the most beautiful tomato uh, recipe in the world. And, and it's by a poet, French poet. And it's, uh, it's like a, a, a sort of miniature, but perfectly formed and described prose poem about um, a, a tomato uh, salad recipe uh, that is the most written in the most romantic way uh, you could possibly imagine. Uh, it's really beautiful. It's only like six lines long. And, you know, it, it describes the tomato as, as having cheeks on fire while the heart stays cool. And in the end, it, it, it puts the poet in, in, it reminds him of Scheherazade. Uh, I just thought, oh, that is so enchanting. Got to have that. And, and uh, I have a family recipe, which is in there as well for um, Dutch tomato soup. So, yes. you know, they weren't going to allow me to write the book without having that included. <laughs> and um, this, is, this question may sound strange to our listeners, <laughs> but uh, not to you, Clarissa, but how do you murder a tomato? That's just a wonderful story. <laughs> how to murder, how to kill your tomato. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I say this to 
many people as I can because I often give talks on on tomatoes and oranges and whatever else I've written about. Um, but with tomato, I, I have to say the trouble. The story goes that I was um, I, I met a very nice Italian gentleman at a conference on tomatoes and we got chatting and he said to me, you know, I love England. I love visiting England, but I'm always horrified when I go into an English home and I look in, I go in the kitchen and I look around and where is the tomato? Where do you put the tomatoes? He said, you put your tomatoes in the fridge. Don't you realise you are killing your tomatoes? Tomatoes do not like the cold. And if you put your tomatoes in the fridge, destroying their flavour and their aroma and their delicious sensual qualities. So he was um, absolutely outraged that we would, um, you know, that all the British, all they knew about tomatoes was, was, was you know, to murder them. And, and he said, you know, the saddest thing he ever saw was when he opened somebody's fridge. It sounds like an ideal guest, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> a tomato detective. <laughs> Yeah, he opened somebody's fridge and he saw half a tomato wrapped in cling film. And he said <laughs> his heart broke. <laughs> so um, that's, that's uh, you know, a warning. Do not kill your tomato. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I tell everybody now. You, I mean, unless they're on the point of absolutely rotting, don't put your tomatoes in the fridge. Mm. Thank you for that note, Clarissa. Uh, <laughs> and to wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask whether you're working on something right now, or are you thinking about uh, doing a research on a particular topic in a near future? Um, there's no book at the moment in the pipeline. I do have a few ideas, um, but I'm doing a series of articles about um, ingredients for a magazine I work a lot for called called Food and Travel. So I'm just about to do the next two features, one of which is on sesame, which is an interesting mm. subject. And one on Yeah, and one on coffee. Um, uh, I do a lot of also, do a lot of um, gourmet food travel writing for this particular mm. magazine. And mm -hmm. recently, you know, in a, in a gap between the lockdowns, I went to Galicia in Northern Spain to do a sort of, you know, a gourmet tour, which was amazing. Um, absolutely wonderful area for food. And um, I also do book reviews for the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement. So, uh, I'd like to do another book. I've, I mean, I've done five now, and every time I come to the end of them, I think, never again, that's it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And then I think, start to think, mm, I think it's probably like having One another more. baby. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I, I love getting, you know, to the root of things. I love the research. I love getting, you know, deep into a, a subject because, you know, it's such an adventure writing about food. You know, you, you, you find yourself going into territory you never imagined, you know, 
of history, of art, of botany, of, you know, archaeology, whatever. It's such a, an entry into many worlds, writing about food and, and food and travel. Um, so I'm beginning to get a niche. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Clarissa, for coming on the show and speaking with me today and uh, sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. I've really enjoyed uh, reading Tomato and I really enjoyed it even more. Uh, talking to you about it. So uh, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you.